Good morning, everyone. And let me just officially, I haven't had a chance to do that yet this semester, let me officially welcome you all back. It's great to see you. And for those of you who are at Goshen for the first time, those of you who have transferred in or are just starting this semester, welcome to you especially. Uh, this is the seasons of resolutions, as you know, being the beginning of the year. One of my New Year's resolutions now that Gangnam style dance has had its 15 minutes of, of fame. I have promised myself and you that I will not beat the dead horse into a reprise in 2013. <laughs> hey, sexy lady. Uh, I will never do that again in public, <laughs> that particular dance. Maybe I can be persuaded to do the Macarena of Bring Out 1996. That also had its 15 minutes of fame. But anyway, that's one of my resolutions for the year. I tell you one thing I am very thankful for as 2013 gets underway. I'm thankful that the end of the world did not happen at the end of last semester, as was predicted by the Mayan calendar. One of the reasons... I am thankful for that is I would have missed a nice break that we had over the holidays. My family and I drove to Florida. I haven't done that. We drove there and back. It was over 35 years ago. My family all lives in Florida and I, I made that trek every semester and in between oftentimes. Uh, we took our time, a little bit more time this time, because I think, if, if possible, road trips are, is that opportunity to allow yourself a, just a little bit of uh, time to run off the road when something interesting catches your fancy. So as we're driving along Columbus, I saw a big sign for, it was called Jungle Gyms. Now, who can resist going to Jungle Gyms? Turns out, Jungle Gyms, I had heard about it before, but it is the largest, it's literally a one-acre building probably the largest international market that I have ever seen or experienced. They have two of them in Columbus. If you get a chance, go there. It is awesome. Every particular culture in the world has a, has a part in that market. We got stuck in the uh, hot sauce market. I mean, literally, there must have been 10,000 different kinds of hot sauce below a big fire truck, rows and rows from A to Z. We ended up buying a bottle of hot sauce called Satan's Ghost Sauce. So you can imagine how hot it was. It's made of ghost peppers, which are a hundred times hotter than the hottest uh, habanero pepper. Uh, in fact, if you cook with it, you can burn your outsides. I don't know what it does. I, we went to Chipotle's and put a little bit on, on our uh, food, and it's hot. Uh, Satan's ghost sauce is a good name for it. By the way, there was also a 768-pound uh, uh, block of head cheese called Jim's Cheese. I should have taken a picture of that. Uh, anyway, if you get to Columbus, who knows what you... Uh, stop in to see Jungle Jim's. It's a great international experience. On the way back, we stopped at, in Tennessee at Sugar's Ribs overlooking the ch city of Chattanooga and had some of the best ribs ever. You can't hardly go to the South without eating ribs, and we brought back a six-pack of uh, bottled barbecue sauces from there as well. So, had the Mayan calendar been right, look what we would have missed on our holiday season, as many of you would have as well. 
But now that we can relax a little bit, knowing the world's going to keep going, I'm looking forward to this semester as well. As we begin the semester, I hope we resolve to find the passion for learning that will motivate us, inspire us, propel us to do our best, help us get up in the morning and go for the gusto of learning. If we ask ourselves, what is it that gives me meaning in life? What does it mean to live a life of passionate learning? What does it mean to love learning with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? Well, we're looking at that this whole year. What does it mean for us as a college to have a core value that invites us to think about being passionate learners? On our road trip, we played this table topic game because sometimes it's hard to know. If I ask you, what is your passion? Are you able to answer that? Sometimes it's hard to know when we have to come at it from different ways and you're in a great time of life to be doing that. We played this table topic game for well over two hours in our car because when you have a 16 and a half year old and you ask questions around the uh, kitchen table, how was your day at school? Fine. So uh, what's happening? Oh, nothing much. But play the table game locked up in a car <laughs> for, two, for, two, for 20 hours and uh, we had only one condition that we had to answer the question posed. It's a, it's a stack of questions. You cannot pass, and what happens in Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, by way of your answer stays in the car, unless, of course, you want to share it with others later. One question was, name one person in your life that you are jealous of. That brought out some interesting responses by my wife and myself, which will stay in the car. Another of the great questions that got to this issue of what are you passionate about? The question simply was, if you could start any business that would prove to be successful enough to make a good living, what business would you create? What business would you create if you could do that? My response was, I wanted to build a college, a college of passionate learners. Actually, I'm kidding. <laughs> Actually, so that's a great thing to be passionate about. Uh, actually, mine was a little more obscure. I wanted to start a theologically themed bookstore with science books in it, in a coastal town by the beach or in the heart of Jerusalem. So who knows what life after Goshen College might entail for me. I think little children are by almost by nature passionate learners. We know that. They approach almost everything with a sense of wonder. Arthur Byler, he's 15 months old, the son of Jody Byler and Ben. Jody works in our uh, communications department. He came to visit in, us in our office last week. And it, it was as if everything around every corner and in every drawer inspired him. It was something awesome to look out for. It was an experience that was waiting to surprise and excite, and excite him. So what is it that we're inquisitive about? I think, unfortunately, one of the side effects of teaching to the test in our elementary and secondary schools has been to train the enthusiasm and passion right out of our learning. But it doesn't have to be that. Steve Jobs, Apple's founder, once said that what made Apple such a success 
was based on the core value, the simple proposition, he said, that we believe, here at Apple, we believe that people with passion can change the world for the better. We believe people with passion can change the world. For Steve Jobs, calligraphy and computer design were his twin passions. And the success of Apple depended on both of those passions. So what is it that in your doing or thinking about makes you feel good about life, makes you feel good about who you are? What do you enjoy doing so much that you would do it for free or even pay money to do it? What is it you do such that you easily lose track of time in the doing? What is it that when you talk about what you're doing, it excites you, it animates you, it brings life into you? How do you what, what, what do you do that you find great meaning and value in the doing? If circumstance allowed you to do, spend more time doing this passion or following that desire, what would it be? More than simply being practical, are we also passionate about what we're learning here at Goshen College? I hope all of us will resolve over this year and ongoing to find those areas of passion in our lives as we study and learn here. Today we have three faculty members who will share with us what they're passionate about. Christy Glick, assistant professor of art, will come first of all, and then Jonathan Geyser, associate professor of business, business development and director of the Center for Business and Entrepreneurial Education, and Dan Smith, professor of chemistry and department chair of chemistry. Each of them will come and share what they're passionate about and I hope that as we hear their stories and as we leave this morning having heard them, that we will return to pursue that great quest for understanding and finding our own passion for learning, uh, whether this semester on into our lives. So with that introduction, I invite Christy Glick. Will you come and share us your passion with us? Good morning. I want to talk with you today a little bit about my journey as an artist and a maker. And as I'm talking to you for the next few minutes, there'll be some images cycling through on the PowerPoint behind me. Um, these images are some of my work from the past six to eight years. Um, I chose mostly to show you jewelry because that's one of the main studio courses that I teach here at the college. Um, so let's get that started. So as I mentioned, I want to talk to you about art and making. This is one area in my life where I find myself repeatedly saying there isn't enough time. There isn't enough time to learn everything in art that I want to learn. I want to learn how to forge. I want to learn how to do blacksmithing. I would love to learn printmaking and have time to paint to make stained glass windows. So the list of things that I would love to learn just goes on and on. And I feel that that sense of there not being enough time is a very clear indicator to me that this is an area of passionate learning in my life. Ever since I was little, I've loved to make things. I remember drawing pages and pages of stamps and then trading them with my brother and sister. 
or sitting with my grandmother at her kitchen table, taking old greeting cards and folding them into tiny little lidded boxes that were so delicate and jewel-like that there didn't even have to be anything inside for it to be a treasure. Or later in college here at Goshen, spending hours in the labs in the ceramics lab, learning how to take clay and make a bowl, or learning how to take metal and make a ring. After college, there was a gap of time when making was put on the back burner, as I pursued things that seemed more practical or perhaps more valid to life. But eventually, after several years of doing jobs that made me miserable, I sat back and took stock, asking myself, when is it that I'm really the most happy and the most fulfilled? And as I sorted through the years of life up until that point, I realized that I'm the most fulfilled when I'm making, when I'm creating something. So at that point, um, I was actually working here at the college as a resident director, and when my years here were finished with that, I took three years to go to graduate school. And at that point, I was looking to learn all that I could about myself and about art. And my goal really was to answer the question, am I an artist? Those three years were both incredibly difficult and incredibly rewarding. My time in grad school helped me learn many things about who I am and about art, both appreciating it and making it. But it also left me with many ongoing questions about both of those things. And that open-endedness, the lack of concrete answers um, to a lot of my questions is one of the things that makes art a continued area of passionate learning for me. Every time I make a piece of art, I'm aware of the many different um, choices that I could have made, the different directions that I discarded as I was making the piece, the other forms the work might have taken. And every time I find one answer to the question, why art? Um, I inevitably find that that answer leads into another. So even after years now of being an artist and thinking about art and talking about why I make art, I don't always find it easy to pin down exactly what it is that makes me passionate about it and bringing me back to learning more about it. At a very basic level, however, I would think that it, um, I think I can say that for me, being passionate about art comes back to beauty and connection. It's important at this point to clarify that I'm not talking about beauty in the abstract, but beauty as it's experienced in the particular. So whether that particular may be a piece of music, a smile, a particularly beautiful leaf, um, I resonate with the claim that Elaine Scarry makes in her book titled On Beauty and Being Just, that one of the fundamental qualities of beauty is that it causes us to want to replicate it in some way, whether that be by describing it to a friend, making a drawing of it, taking a picture, or at its most basic, just looking at the object that you find beautiful so that that experience can continue a little longer. The experience of beauty contains an inherent push towards creation, towards making. So at a very basic level, every time I experience something beautiful, it helps draw me back into the studio. The other motivator I mentioned is connection. There are many ways I experience art making as a connection to things larger than myself. And as an introvert, I deeply appreciate anything that helps me stay connected. Here are just a few examples of how art creates connection for me. One of the most straightforward ways is through the jewelry I make, because unlike the larger pieces of artwork, um, I often carry pieces of jewelry around with me through, the day, through my daily life as I wear it. Um, with my, with my clothing and on my body. 
It's amazing how many people will start a conversation with you based on what you're wearing. And then after you've started talking, who knows where the conversation will go. Another point of connection comes through the materials that I use to make my work. I often use found objects. Um, you'll have noticed in some of these images the pieces contained bits and pieces of things found in nature. And the objects that I use often connect me to something larger than myself and to the artwork. Um, they connect me to the time where I found the object, the location, the people I was with. The objects can also create a connection for other people who see the finished artwork. Because if you see something that you recognize from another sphere of life in a piece of art, it automatically creates connections for you based on your past experience of those things. And then, of course, there's the way that being a maker connects me, in truth, connects all of us to the divine. How many times have you heard a prayer that starts, Creator God? One of the basic aspects of the divine is that of creator. And I believe that each time I create something, there is a way in which I embody a bit of that aspect of the divine. I believe this is true for all acts of creation, artistic and otherwise. There is much a connection to God as acts of prayer or service. So there's one last thought that I want to leave you with. While I certainly have a passion for learning when it comes to art and to making, there's also an ebb and flow to that passion. As I was thinking about what to share today, it seemed important to me to acknowledge this. Passionate learning may be our goal, but it's going to be inevitable that there are times when that state of passionate learning is not, just not possible. As I look back on my life up to this point, it's clear to me that I have a deep and abiding passion for art. But there have also been many moments, days, maybe even years, where that passion has faltered or been buried under life's circumstances. But somehow it keeps resurfacing, and I think for me that is one of the key elements of being a passionate learner. Realizing that it isn't and can't be a constant state of being, but it is something that I'll keep coming back to. Despite the setbacks and times of stagnation, the learning is never really finished. Good morning. Okay. I'm going to talk to some pictures. Uh-oh. That's not the same as the one I'm seeing. <laughs> okay. Close enough. Okay. Um, when I was... Uh, first asked to uh, speak at this convocation, I, I hesitated a little bit uh, because I was a little bit nervous. I was asked to speak about one thing that I'm passionate about, and I thought, wow, that could be difficult to narrow it down to one thing I'm passionate about because I'm passionate about a lot of things. My interests are spread out all over the place. Um, I. Uh, I'm often asked, you know, what hobbies? What are your hobbies? And I struggle with this because I've had many hobbies uh, over, the, over my life. Uh, I'm interested in a lot of things, but I found it very difficult to uh, narrow my interest to one or two things. I kept constantly being uh, pulled and lured into something else uh, because I like to explore many things. I'm an adventurer at heart. Uh, you see, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an explorer. 
uh, I really wanted to sail the world and d discover new lands and explore things. <clears throat> but uh, unfortunately, by the time I got to the planet, uh, most of uh, the world had already been explored and uh, uh, I was a couple centuries too late. So, I thought, well, maybe I could be a scientific explorer and, you know, scour the Sahara Desert for uh, uh, dinosaur bones and uh, put them together and try and, uh, you know, figure out the past. In fact, when I was in first grade, we were all asked, uh, what would you like to be when you grow up? And people said, well, a fireman, a, a policeman. And, and I said, a paleontologist. And uh, the teacher thought, well, that's interesting, but she wasn't quite sure what it was, so she was gonna check. <laughs> then on the other hand, perhaps, perhaps I could be a space explorer. Uh, you know, growing up in the 1960s was the era of the moon landings and the NASA program and everything. And so I, like many other kids of my age, uh, had our, our epoch of wanting to be an astronaut and explore the moon, explore the solar system. And, and that could be a great adventure and I could be an explorer. The only problem with that is my idea of, uh, you know, space exploration was more in line with that. <laughs> and that was still a couple centuries away. And so once again, I found myself, you know, being born in the wrong time. And so I was a little bit frustrated, you know, a, a frustrated explorer. But then I, you know, I recognized little by little that there was a revolution going on right under my nose. And this revolution was the information revolution. And, you know, research was being done in all kinds of areas, and there were more books being published than ever before. The world was connected as it had never been, and access to information was as easy as ever. Uh, human knowledge was expanding exponentially, and I was smack in the middle of it. And so this was very exciting. There was an adventure to be had. And so I got hooked into reading, and I started reading all kinds of things and seeing how they were related. Uh, I just couldn't get enough. And about five, six years ago, I got introduced to Audible books. And this was the maximum here, because you could be connected listening to books uh, all, to all, you know, in all hours, you know, as you're driving to work. Uh, as you're waiting in the doctor's office. There was no time that could be, uh, uh, you know, uh, you had to be wasting time and not connected. I could be learning all the time. And this was novel for me. And uh, most of the books I read were nonfiction. Uh, I found that nonfiction was much more interesting than fiction. I don't know. Uh, and I just loved learning things. And uh, the more I learned, uh, the more I wanted to learn additional things. I started to think, well, is this gonna turn me into some kind of knowledge junkie? <laughs> and that was a little bit of a scary prospect, but uh, I, prefer to I prefer to talk, uh, think about it as a knowledge explorer. And here was my chance to be an adventurer and explorer. Uh, I love searching out new books and interesting research that's being done and see how it all fits together. Because what I really enjoy is the relationship of things. How things are connected. What's the context behind something? How is A related to B? Whoops, come on, A. There we go. 
How, how is A related to B? How are things connected? Now, in most systems, things are a little bit more complex than that. You have to do a little bit more connecting the dots to figure things out. And in some systems, it's just downright intense. And it's very hard to get your head around. But things are connected. And it's, I find it fascinating to see how information and things are connected and how things work. Now, this is not what we're accustomed to in, in receiving our information from our, our news media, et cetera. We're often presented with uh, isolated, I call them orphaned pieces of information with no context, no way of figuring out how does this fit into the scheme of things. Uh, I'm pointing the right way, okay. Uh, but the information is out there. You can do the connections, you just sometimes have to do them yourself uh, and find things out and connect the dots and make sense of the world yourself. Uh, and if you do that, things start making a lot more sense. Let me give you an example of one of the connections I've been fascinated by. When I was uh, in uh, college here, I was a biologist. So I enjoyed learning about uh, bacteria and viruses and how they function and how they interact with humans in the form of pathology. And I'm also a great history buff. I love reading about the rise and fall of empires, etc. And I started seeing connections between pathology and the course of history. And I found it fascinating to uh, see how uh, pathology in microorganisms have uh, affected the, the course of human history. From ancient Roman times, and the first plagues during Justinian's uh, reign in the Eastern Roman Empire, to the Middle Ages and the Black Death and what that did to European economic and social structures, to the Columbian Exchange where, you know, the American Indians were basically wiped out before the settlers even came in contact with them, to the French Revolution, which is a special one for me, and Napoleon's uh, conquest of Russia was actually thwarted more than anything else by the rickettsia bacteria. And this is a, a very interesting one because it was not before his uh, armies burned down my great, great, great grandfather's farmhouse. And so it had a little personal connection there. In fact, when I was in fourth grade and we were studying about Napoleon, uh, the teacher asked, does anybody know who Napoleon was? I go, yeah, he's the guy that burnt down my great, great, great grandfather's house. That guy, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it brought history alive. And into the 20th century with the flu pandemics and and all the things we've, uh, we've had. Now this one too, I lost two great grandparents to the 1918-1919 flu pandemic and that seriously uh, impacted our family history. So uh, there was a connection to this history and how all of these things were related. I found it fascinating though to, to see how uh, microorganisms have played such a vital role in influencing and shaping our world. But my main quest, my main thrust of learning is to learn as much as I can about humanity and to understand who exactly we are, where we find ourselves in this vast universe, what makes us tick, why do we do think and feel the things that we do. It's a fascinating subject and it never ends. And also to look and try and understand where humanity is going, what's in store for our future. It's a fascinating project, it's a real adventure. I've been reading as much as I can about lots of things and seeing how they're connected. And it's led, uh, 
My mission here is to better understand the human condition. So I took the leap into the unknown and had been reading like crazy. And it's taken me all kinds of places, down the dusty roads of ancient history, uh, across the plains and deserts of paleontology and evolutionary biology, uh, into the steamy jungles of politics, religion, philosophy, and morality. And let me tell you, those are steaming jungles. Uh, into the dark recesses of the human mind. Across the rugged peaks of culture and sociology and into the canyons of Wall Street. And across the vast time and space of astronomy and physics. It's been a fabulous adventure. I couldn't have asked for anything more. Um, Someday I'd love to write a book about it, maybe some kind of unified theory of the human condition, pull it all together, try and make sense of it. Uh, I may have to spice it up a little bit, though, to get people to read it, so I thought maybe I'd wrap it up in the form of a science fiction novel or something, you know, and package it that way. In fact, five or six years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and, from a dream, and in my mind I had the complete plot of a science fiction uh, novel. And in which would serve as a platform to explore the great questions and mysteries of human existence. And so someday I'd like to write that, uh, like to write that book. I wrote it down, I've got the outline, it's just waiting for, the, for all the details. So what have I learned along the way in the meantime? Uh, I've learned that there's a lot more questions than answers when it comes to the great mysteries of human existence. That it, the goal is not so much about the destination, but rather the process of the journey. And that the meaning of life is definitely more than 42. Had to put that in there for you Douglas Adams fans. And that the human species is definitely the most fascinating creature on the planet. Well, almost. So there's a world of information just waiting to be had. It's an adventure that's not over yet. So I'm still out there learning, exploring, and uh, I guess that means that in the end, maybe I do have a hobby. My hobby is learning. Thank you. passion. Uh, we'll start off with how I got started. Um, when we moved out in the country well, about 15 years ago, I visited Bob Westerbeek who had some homing pigeons. And I'd read about homing pigeons when I was a kid. And I thought, oh, that would be fun to go see some because he had raced these birds for a number of years. He was a, an old Belgian uh, and had been racing them. Uh, and while I was there, he said, well, would you like some? I'll raise some for you and give them to you. Uh, 
Sure. So I got started in homing pigeons. Uh, and then about a year later, I joined the racing pigeon club and was actively competing with the birds, although I wasn't very good at it. Um, but I can tell you that the best bird I ever had was released in La Rolla, Missouri, about 403 miles from my house, and it came home in eight and a half hours. That's better than you can do. That's impressive. So, uh, but people then would ask in the club, well, you're a scientist, and that's usually uh, not a good sign when people start something with your uh, answer the big question. And the big question was, can we figure out, can you design a test that will tell us if these birds can home or not? Or do we really have to do all this training? Because we would spend miles and miles on the road letting birds go, letting them come home and practicing coming home. Can you do anything and design a test to avoid that? Well, the simple answer then was no. Can't do that. Far too complicated. We didn't know how they home. We don't know the genes involved. Uh, there's been nothing done on a molecular genetics basis. We don't. We assume they have DNA, but nobody had tested to see if they did have DNA. And so um, they do. So no one could answer that question. But I had already started collecting what I thought were attractive colors in birds, and. Uh, you, you can tell they're, they're Mennonites. They're, they're birds of peace, but they'll fight amongst themselves pretty well. <laughs> so, um, but I, so I've had begun to collect colored birds, and I couldn't answer the question about homing, but I thought maybe there would be a chance that we could answer questions about why is this bird one color and that bird another color? And thanks to Jody Saylor, who helped me get started, because um, I'm a chemist, I'm not a biologist. I look at things a little bit different then. DNA is just a big molecule. Um, yeah, it has some importance, but uh, it codes for proteins. They're just big molecules that do things. And I want to know why they do things different in this bird versus that bird. So if we're going to do genetics, we have to have something to compare to. And so we call that the wild-type standard. Uh, all organisms have that. This is the wild-type standard for a pigeon. It's a blue-gray bird, a little bit darker head, darker tail, nice black stripe on the tail, and two black bars. So that's the standard we're going to compare to. Uh, we don't really care if it really was the wild-type or was the first set of genes. Uh, we just need to pick something and say, if it's not this, then it's a mutation. So this is not the same colored bird. Uh, instead of the blue color, it has a, well, we call it red. I guess you have to have some imagination. But it's red like a cow or a horse would be red, not like a cardinal. But it has the same bars. So this is a single mutation uh, that causes this reddish color on the breast and uh, sort of an ash gray color on the wing. That's black. <laughs> That's white. White, if you will, is a very complicated color. Um, genetically, I have two different kinds of white because I release them for weddings and funerals, so if you're planning either of those in the near future, uh, just contact me. So. Um, but white can be arrived at many, many ways. 
And this particular one is called recessive white. It's a simple recessive trait uh, and paints the bird completely white. That is, it somehow blocks pigment from being synthesized every place except, it doesn't want to cooperate, the eyes. I don't, can you see the eyes there? The eyes are dark. They aren't pink. This is not an albino. Albino pigeons do exist. This isn't one. I should have had them line up. Uh, this is what we call recessive red. It's the third of what we call an epistatic trait. So it has, the bird has essentially painted this red color, like the black was painted solid black. The white was painted solid white. It hides all the mutations that might be there. You can't tell if this bird has bars on its wings. You can't tell if it has spots on its wings. Is it ash red or is it blue? We just don't know. What we know is it's been painted red. All of the genes so far have been a single mutation. So that is, there's only one gene that causes the difference between what you see here and that first wild type bird. Um, this one, I think, is particularly attractive. Uh, it's taken, it's a, again a single gene, it's a dominant gene. One copy of it makes the bars white, the tail bar. Uh, sometimes it's much whiter than in this particular bird. But this is basically a blue bar bird, just like that first one I showed you, except the gene somehow prevents the pigment from being synthesized where those black bars were supposed to be. The next three birds are multiple genes. Uh, this one's a great, I mean, that's lovely. If you don't like that, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> that's just, I find that to be a very striking color. And the neat thing genetically is we don't know why. Uh, there's, uh, it depends on which side of the argument you're going to be on. There's two, three genes that go together and make this color. Uh, we just don't know yet. Uh, and part of the problem is it's, uh, it's a little jumpy. Um, this is not a homing pigeon, by the way. It's a Swabian pigeon. There's something like 200 different breeds of birds, uh, and this one was given to me strictly because of the color. This is another, again, not homing pigeon. Um, I think that's a, a very attractive coloration. I don't know if you can tell on the picture. Can you see the iridescence on the wing at all? Um, this has got a particular gene that makes a lot of reflected color off it. So can you see the green and purple? On, in the black areas particularly, maybe not. Well, come up and look at it. So, uh, but this also demonstrates that not only do we have a huge variation in color, um, the body is uh, controlled by one gene and the wings have at least two other genes in it. We don't really know for sure what all's there, but there's a crest on this bird. And so we also have a significant, I don't get into the, the different feather ornaments, but there's a large variety there. And one last one. Uh, this one, with a nice, lovely buff color. 
This is two genes, and we do know exactly what they are uh, that combine uh, to make this. So lots of different colors. There's some 200 different colors, uh, at least 50 different genes that we know that affect just the color. We have feather ornaments, so you can get birds that have feathers on their feet that are as big as the flight feathers. Uh, you have birds that uh, are so proud they puff up. Uh, and if you aren't careful, if you're in your loft a lot, they'll just forget to feed their babies, uh, which will die because they're, they're always puffed up and proud and showing off. And you can get birds with some 32 different tail feathers um, spread out. They call them fantails. Just a huge variation. And I think that uh, pigeons will be to the avian world what mice and rats have been to the mammal world genetically. That is, uh, we have a huge variation. And as we get into it, we'll start learning a lot about what happens. Uh, so I'm driven and passionate about the pigeons for two reasons. One is, I really want to know. I want to know what happens. What's the difference between this bird? Why does a protein do something here and not there? What's the mutation? And we now have the tools available to us to try and do that. Uh, and that's me being a chemist, just coming through. I want to know what's happening at a molecular level. The second thing uh, is now that I'm into this, I start seeing things that nobody else has seen before. So in August, I told the faculty about a gene that we discovered in our loft. Uh, and I was able to do the classic genetics, that is figure out is it recessive, dominant, um, sex-linked, autosomal, so I can figure those things out. In October, I went to a pigeon show in Louisville. And that tends to be a show where a lot of geneticists gather. And a buddy and I were walking around, and we looked at a bird and said, you know, what's, that's a different color. What's causing that? because uh, he's got a lot more experience than I do in that area. So, I don't know, I've never seen it. I called a bunch of other the Gen X guys over, hey, you gotta come look at this bird, it's a little different, see if anyone ever see anything, what's causing it? Um, no, nobody's seen it. I talked to the owner of the bird, he said, yeah, no problem, I'll get a bird to you. Uh, last Thursday, a bird arrived in the mail. And the first thing you'll notice is this is not a homing pigeon. Um, it is a pigeon. It is not the biggest pigeons that exist, um, but it was, uh, it's called a mundane. It was originally bred for eating. Um, that's a huge bird. This is a, what I call a two-handed bird. <laughs> but uh, can you see the, the tick marks? There's little black stripes. This is a blue bar. There's the bars. But it's got these little black stripes on the wings. No one's ever seen that before. And so uh, I will now be doing the classic genetics of this bird uh, and trying to figure out, is that a recessive trait, a dominant trait, and figure out what's going on with it. Uh, which means I'll have two genes that I have to name. So if you want to come look at it and give me a suggestion for the name, um, I'd be glad to hear them. So that's what. I'm doing with my bird. So we're attempting to sequence the DNA and try and find out what is uh, causing the different colors. And hopefully in a couple weeks, we'll be sending a new sample of DNA out and see if we know uh, for the sex-linked traits. Can we track one down? So I encourage you uh, to find something, that, like Christy who wants to make things, or the biologist who went awry and is now looking at information explosion. Um, or a chemist who's now doing biology, find something that you're passionate about and go learn to do it well. So, thank you.